You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we're going to take our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 6 as well as from 2 Corinthians 6. In connection with Lord's Day 41, I realize I've been stretching this Lord's Day out a bit. Today we're going to have a third look at Lord's Day 41, the seventh commandment, especially in connection with what the Apostle Paul writes about our bodies being temples of God or temples of the Holy Spirit. So let's first of all read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And there the word of our God reads as follows through the Apostle Paul, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Then we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the verses 14 to 18. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my son's and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I preach to you this afternoon then from the word of our God as the church summarizes it and confesses it, especially in answer 109 of Lord's Day 41. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins, since we body and soul are temples of the Holy Spirit? It is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, whatever may entice us to unchastity. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, today there is nothing left of the ancient city of Corinth except for a pile of ruins. As in the days of old, the Acro-Corinth, or the mound on which once sat an ancient temple, still dominates, but yet for the rest it is a pretty dead place. But not so in the days of the Apostle Paul. In his time, Corinth was the leading city in Greece and a very lively place. It was full of commerce as it stood at the crossroads between east and west. Nearby, there were two harbors which brought in ships, people, and goods from near as well as from far. Its economy was humming. And added to this, Corinth was also full of culture. It prized wisdom, promoted education, loved debates, dabbled in philosophy, tried in some small way to compete with Athens. And then, too, it was full of religion. There were at least 12 temples in the place, and among the main one was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing, the temple of Apollo, the god of, well, let's just say many things, light, sun, medicine, poetry, arts, sports, and you name it. In Paul's day, religion was all the rage, and as a result, sacrifices, rituals, priests, and priestesses were everywhere. And finally, in addition to Corinth being a place full of commerce, culture, and religion, it was also a place full of immorality. It's not often that the name of a city turns into a verb. But that's what happened to the name Corinth. To Corinthianize became known in the ancient world as to practice sexual immorality. And practice it, they did. Temple prostitutes plied their trade at every temple site. Regular prostitutes did business in between. Sexual orgies, whether related to business dealings or not, were also the order of the day. Yes, and now, in such a city, God decided to plant a church of Jesus Christ. You might expect him to detour wide around it and warn against it, as he did against Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's not the case. The Lord sends the Apostle Paul to this place, this particular place, and to his church there. And he sends the Apostle Paul with a radical kind of message. A message that also resonates in part here in Lord's Day 41. Well, what kind of a message? Well, we can summarize it under this short theme, from tomb to temple. And we're going to see, first of all, the honor that's connected to being a temple, the challenge, as well as the calling. Well, beloved, one thing that you cannot miss as we read together 1 Corinthians 6 as well as 2 Corinthians 6 is that in both places the Apostle Paul calls believers temples. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, he calls believers a temple of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 6, he calls believers temples of the living God. So in both places, he is saying that being a believer can somehow, in some way, be connected and compared to being a temple. Now, I would say to you that's a surprising and stunning announcement from several angles. In the first place, it's surprising from the angle of Scripture and what we are, as Scripture says, by nature. Elsewhere, you know, the Apostle Paul says we are far from being temples. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 as an example, there Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus and he tells them, you were dead. You were stone dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul says, once all you people were dead. And that means that they were so wrapped up in their sins and their transgressions that they were morally and spiritually dead. And that's not all. For turn to Romans chapter 3 and you can find another indictment. Not only were they dead, Paul says, they were also rather useless. Paul turns his attention there to both Jew and Greek. And he says that by nature there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. And that's the Apostle Paul's way of saying that you cannot find among these people any wisdom, any spirituality, any morality. There's nothing good or positive to be said about these people. They're useless and they're worthless. And so by nature, and that's the biblical message elsewhere, by nature we are dead and we are worthless. And of course to that we could add a lot of other bad news. But I think you get the picture or hopefully you're starting to get the picture. Man in sin, and, and man without God is ugly. He may have all sorts of pretensions, be brimming over with bravado, be convinced of his own greatness, yet the reality, the bitter reality is that man without God is like the emperor who has no clothes. You may recall, the emperor allowed himself to be convinced that he was beautifully dressed when, in fact, he was butt naked. And man without God does the same. He's convinced that he's quite something when, in actual fact, he's naked and, even worse, he's dead and worthless. Now that, beloved, is a hard truth. 
It immediately offends our human pride and brings about an avalanche of ridicule, sarcasm, and denial. But alas, the proof is everywhere. In Paul's day, you simply had to walk down the streets of Corinth, whether day or night, and you could see the debauchery. It hit you at every street corner. Every alley furnished the proof. Every gathering was full of it. Every neighborhood could testify to it. Sex in all of its perverted forms, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, pornography, you name it. It was everywhere. The Corinthians were drowning in sleaze. But yet, not just the Corinthians, what about us today? Does it ever strike you, or does it still strike you? Maybe you've grown immune to it, but what you see almost on a daily basis in your newspapers and magazines, what you see on television shows and in the accompanying advertisements, which sometimes are worse than the shows themselves, or, or what you meet on your computers or your internet or your, your smartphones, which I think in some ways aren't very smart at all, your iPads, You see it on the streets and on the billboards and in the malls, and soon summer comes and it will accost you everywhere. It's a parade of overt sexuality. Some years ago when I went to China for the first time, and hopefully I haven't told you this story before, but in any case, we went to see the Forbidden City, one of the Big tourist attractions in China, along with the Great Wall. It was a very hot, it was a very humid day. And and what did I see? But I saw a sea of Chinese people dressed modestly, and I would say with class. But you know, then there were the, the tourists. And the tourists or another story entirely. Lots of cleavage, tight shirts and skirts, clothes that either didn't fit or barely covered, clothes that didn't have any class or style or purpose even to them. I came away saying to my colleagues, you know, what a contrast. On that day, I applauded the Chinese and I was ashamed to be a white Caucasian tourist. Well, now, in such a climate of depravity, the gospel still comes as it did in the days of the Apostle Paul. But then the gospel comes to such a situation as this with a a radically new message. Paul writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
Now, you need to understand, that caught their attention. And especially in Paul's day, that part about the body. For, for you need to understand that the Greeks in Corinth, as well as the Greeks elsewhere, had little use for the body. They, they looked at themselves as being made up of three constituent parts. We are body, we are spirit, and we are soul. And in that threesome, they considered the body to be by far the least. They viewed it in almost exclusively negative terms as a necessary kind of evil. They, they talked about the body as if it were a jail or a prison house. And they much preferred the spirit and especially, especially the soul. Oh, to talk about your soul. The soul was everything to them. Well, when you have such an outlook, it's not, soon, it's not too hard to see that soon there arises a, a disconnect between the body and the physical on the one side and the spirit and the soul on the other side. If your body is of no account anyway, why not use it and abuse it? Why not engage in sexual sin in all of its lurid varieties or in prostitution? It doesn't matter anyway. It's only your jail. But then, beloved, along comes the Apostle Paul and he says that it does matter. He says the body is not for sexual immorality. It is for the Lord. In other words, the Lord gives it value, and the Lord gives it worth. And no doubt the people said to him, prove it. How can you support that kind of argument? But the Apostle Paul does, for notice he points them to what the Lord did for Jesus Christ. Did he leave, did our God leave the body of Jesus Christ in the grave? Was he content to let this so-called or this supposedly inferior part of his life rot in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? No, Paul insists. The Lord didn't leave his body in the tomb. But the Lord raised him up, body and soul. He used his resurrection power to transform the body of his one and only son. And not just him. But notice that the Apostle Paul adds in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, And he will raise us. Also, our bodies, too, will get this special kind of treatment. They also will be raised, renewed, and and one day transformed. And why will they get this special treatment? Because Paul writes, we are members of Christ. Through faith in Him, we belong to Him. 
Through faith in him, we become part of him. Through faith in him, we are joined and united with him. We are an integral part, as it were, of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we've become full members of Christ. We belong to him totally and entirely. Even our bodies, believe it or not, belong to Christ. No part of our existence is excluded. Now, if that is the case, you'll notice next Paul wonders aloud how any believer can join himself to a prostitute. How's that possible? How can someone become one flesh with such a person? How can anyone do this to his own body? Yes, and as the Apostle Paul is pondering this huge moral abnormality, he throws another truth into the mix, and he adds, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not the temple of of Aphrodite or Asclepius or Apollo. No, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the temple, he says in his next letter, of the living God. Wow, how far have we not come? Who could have imagined this? Once dead and worthless, and now temples? That's astounding. And you know what makes it even more astounding is the meaning of that word temple. Of course, the Corinthians knew that temples were supposed to be holy places and holy spaces. Temples are places where the human and divine meet, and especially where the human worship, adore, and honor the divine. But yet the reality is that in Paul's day, the word temples and temple had become distorted. You look at Corinth, it's filled with temples of competing gods and goddesses. It's filled with temple practices that are utterly immoral and revolting. Why, you might even think that in this kind of a context that God would be hesitant to introduce the temple imagery into such a world and in such a setting. But yet he's not. And instead what he does is he points his people to a whole new temple and to a much greater temple concept. And indeed, beloved, it's good in that connection to realize that this idea of temple, this temple motif or theme, actually is a theme that is woven through the Bible from beginning to end. You know, in the very beginning, God made a garden. The garden's called Eden. But if you look very closely at that Garden of Eden, you see it's actually a temple. That's where God and Adam meet, connect, relate. 
That's where Adam worships. And later on, Israel first made a temple prototype in connection with the tabernacle. And then God had Solomon make the real thing. And later on, you may remember, he had the exiles rebuild it. But yet in due time, both temples failed. But God did not let go of the idea. No, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? Among many other things, Jesus Christ is the final temple. And not only is Jesus Christ the final temple, but God also pointed toward the end in Revelation 21 and 22, where he says that one day a whole new temple garden is going to emerge. And so you need to understand that in the midst of this rich temple imagery, the Apostle Paul is led to tell the believers in Corinth that they too are temples. They are individual places where God dwells and lives. The living God, the real God. And they are a precursor to the day when God will once again not only fill his people, but will fill all of creation with his glory. What an honor it is to be a temple of the living God. But still also, what a challenge especially in our sex-saturated society. And what a challenge, especially if you happen to be a parent today. I'm sure you all want your children to grow up to be faithful Christ followers, to be holy in all they do, to be discerning and self-disciplining. And in time, you hope that they may become holy husbands, holy wives, as well as Holy parents, no small task or venture. You know, there was a a day not so long ago when the only exposure that one had, for example, to pornography was the local corner drugstore. Somewhere in that drugstore, there would be a rack filled with magazines. And then not too far from the popular mechanics and the Vogue and the house and garden magazines, there would be a number of what they called smutty magazines. And in addition, not too far off, there might also be a book stand with some very questionable pocketbooks on it. In short... In those days also, you could be led astray. As a matter of fact, all through history, you can be led astray. But it it was not as pervasive as it is today. It's not as in your face as it is today. Of course, you can try to isolate yourself from it, but that's rather hard, isn't it? Back in 1972, and that's way back, I know, 
And a few times after that, I've been called to pastor in more, let's say, remote places. And then one of the sales pitches that I used to hear was that I should move there for the sake of my family because then we would be far away from the wicked influences of the city. Alas, now when I go to such places on occasion, I see satellite dishes everywhere. And they immediately tell me that the city has come to the town. Some would say, I wouldn't, but some would say civilization has caught up with these places, poor places. But the point is, beloved, today you, you can not escape, it seems, the immorality in this world. In some ways, we're not so different from Lot, who at times didn't know where to look or what to think as he was confronted with the immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. So what are we to do? What can we do? Are we defenseless in the face of this evil onslaught? Well, thankfully not. For notice, notice too that the Apostle Paul says to the believers in Corinth and elsewhere that your body is a temple. But then he adds, of the Holy Spirit. Or your body is a temple of the living, true, vibrant, all-powerful God. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers that their temple is unlike any other in this world. He's telling them that they have the Holy Spirit living in them. The third person of the triune God dwells in us, and that means that we are never beloved without means or without resources. And the Spirit who created the world and who conceived the Christ and who regenerates believers lives in us and tells us that we are never ever without power. And the Spirit who is holy and who makes others holy is at home in us and he tells us that we are never ever without access to divine holiness. In short, more than ever before, we as believers can and need to avail ourselves of the Spirit and of His gifts. Maybe you ask how. How do you tap into that special pipeline? Well, in part, the answer lies in spiritual disciplines. They're rather obvious. You know what it means by spiritual disciplines, right? It means, first of all, prayer. What's praying but calling on outside help and resources on much bigger persons than ourselves to come into our lives and hearts and to help us? You cannot 
Stand firm today and maintain your integrity as a believer unless Paul writes to, in Ephesians 6, you pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And you know, it also means reading the Word of God. And you've heard that many times before. Prayer, Scripture reading, those two go together. But, but you know, reading the Word of God alone isn't enough. Maybe we need to learn from the prophets of old. The prophets of old once said, what you need to do with the Word of God is you need to eat it. Digest it. Chew on it. Make it so much a part of you that it forms and shapes and, and molds your life. And you know, then too, it means, if we're talking about spiritual disciplines, it also means public worship. When God, through his servants, tell us not to neglect meeting together on the Lord's Day, that's not just because he wants to see your pretty face. It's because he knows you can't fight this battle alone. You need to do it in the company of the saints. You know, together we, we sing, we pray, we offer, we listen, we celebrate, we serve, and we fight. We resist the devil. And finally, spiritual discipline also means not just prayer, scripture reading, and worship. It also means spiritual accountability. You know, elsewhere in his letters, the Apostle Paul is quick to say that the believers not only are one in spirit, they're also one in body. They're one body, but that body is made up of many different parts and gifts and talents and abilities and responsibilities. But, you know, part of our responsibilities is to hold one another accountable. That's a bad word today. Politicians don't like to be held accountable. You see that in the Middle East. People, none of us probably like to be held accountable by anyone else. But we need it. And are we doing it? Are we doing it, for example, as, as parents and as, as fellow believers? Parents, in the face of this immoral onslaught, do you set any standards in your home and apply them? You know, television time is not private time somewhere in a bedroom in the corner of a house or in the corner of your basement. Television time is not unsupervised, unrestrained free time. And if you think it is, you've got a few problems. And internet time should not take place in the bedrooms of our homes or far from watching eyes. And cell phone time should not be treated as if it is a mere innocent pastime where people, especially young people, just talk together. 
As parents, we need to be with it. And we need to talk to our children about what are they doing on all these modern gadgets. And I'm not saying these gadgets in and of themselves are evil, but they can sure lead you into temptation and into a lot of evil. So are we teaching our children something about self-discipline, something about holiness? In terms of what their eyes see and their ears hear? But then in addition to parents, what about us as fellow believers? As believers, sometimes people say, oh, we're not responsible for our neighbor. But of course, that's an unbiblical concept because the Bible tells us everywhere that we're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that means you don't turn a blind eye when your neighbor is watching immoral videos or movies or when they take you to places filled with immoral and drunken conduct, when they engage in what is now being called sex texting. You know what that means? That means you send a sex message over your cell phone. And, and today the, the world is invisibly filled with all kinds of texts going back and forth, back and forth. And you'd be surprised how many of them are sexual in nature. So, beloved, we need to get with it. We need to own up to our communal responsibility and accountability. And together we need to resist. We need to confront. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to remember especially that God has made us to be temples. And remember that one day, the whole world is going to be a temple. And in preparation for that day, the Catechism says we need to keep ourselves pure and holy. We need to do it if we want to avoid the fiery lake of burning sulfur and the company of dogs. Now, you might wonder about that. What's this about sulfur and a lake and dogs? Well, have you ever looked at the end of the book of Revelation? First of all, Revelation 21, verse 8, if you read that, you'll understand the first reference to a lake. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And go to the next chapter, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 15, and you understand the reference to dogs. Outside, it says, are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You see, at the very end of the Bible, there is this amazing double warning. It shows you God doesn't over time water down his standard of holiness. No, he never retires, he never tires of repeating it. 
It goes on and on. And may we hear it and tune in and heed it. May we little temples do all we can to clothe ourselves in holiness and so prepare the way for the final temple of the living God. Revelation, once again, chapter 21 says, I did not see a temple in the city. John writes, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.